Welcome to another episode of The Human Voice. As always, this is Bob Hutchins. And today, I have Karen Kelly joining me. And I'm really excited and looking forward to this conversation. Karen and I have been affiliated and connected on LinkedIn now for quite some time. And what I noticed about Karen is not only her amazing background, but her similar interests in life, in business, in psychology, etc., So I think we're going to have really, really fun and interesting time together. So before we jump right in with my interview with Karen, let me read her bio so that you have a little bit of background of who she is. Karen has been a founder. She's been a CEO. She's been a CMO, Chief Marketing Officer, in industries spanning advertising, healthcare, technology. She's the former founder of one of Boston's most profitable media studios, And she speaks regularly at marketing and entrepreneur conferences nationwide. Most recently, Karen was the president of Tapple, a mobile-first technology platform used to engage consumers and gather first-party data in the physical world. Karen has a strong interest in the intersection of psychology and technology in the emerging digital marketplace, which we'll talk about. Karen, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Bob. I'm super excited to be here. Now, are you in Boston? I'm about 20, 20 minutes directly west of Boston right now. Um, so we're sort of crawling out of winter in this sort of murky, muddy spring. But we did have a day at 60 degrees this week. So that was pretty fabulous. Nice. Nice. And have you lived there a long time in Boston? Uh, yeah. So Boston's been home. I came up for undergrad and then again for grad school and then I uh, got married and it sucked. So it's been about uh, 15 years at this point. Okay, great. Well, Karen, tell me a little bit about your past because I find your career path fascinating. It's, it's actually, it intersects and it's very similar to my own, but also pretty different. So before we get into your professional career, I'd love to hear where you grew up, what your young life was like, and what brought you on this kind of startup technology uh, CEO, CMO world? Um, yeah, so I grew up in New Jersey, actually the farmlands of New Jersey. The joke is that uh, I, I wound up in like the same town, a mirror town of Massachusetts of what I grew up in, in, in New Jersey. Also White House, Black Shutters, Red Front Door. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, it, it was a wonderful community. I have three older brothers and I think, so I'm the youngest of four and the only girl and I think, you know, as I've gotten older, I've come to appreciate more and more just how much that has impacted, not just my personality, um, but really my, the trajectory of my career too. Um, I think, you know, both my parents and my brothers, I mean, it was, it was really all about um, kind of not taking the easy way. And, you know, everything I had, I, I could kind of call my own were things I had to fight for. <laughs> In the most loving way possible. <laughs> so um, I sort of grew up in this kind of like scrappy, you know, um, you know, I'm, I've got to speak louder or, you know, inject myself in some sort of creative way to, um, you know, kind of get what I'm after. So it's no surprise that I, I wind up, to be honest, right, in startup tech um, and, and marketing. Um, so, you know, um, I don't know if you're familiar with that. This is this is an amazing LinkedIn plugin, by the way, for your audience. Um, it's called Crystal Nose. Um, and I found it about a year and a half ago. And essentially, 
You know, it's super low cost, but you can go to anybody's LinkedIn profile, click the Crystal Nose plugin, and it pulls up an AI-driven profile about that person. Mm. But the best part about it is that it actually gets into, you know, how to speak to them, how to write to them, what's the, what's the correct language to use for this person, what's going to stress them out, what's, what are they going to kind of look for? Are they more congenial? Do they want a lot of details, attachments? In any case, when I did my own, um, one of the things that I always remember is that it says, likes to find ways around the rules. <laughs> wow. It's, it's pretty darn accurate. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, I mean, that's, I think it was, it's really that background and, and the way I grew up, um, a loving house, but, you know, a tough love house um, really kind of helped, helped get me to where I am. So you went to college, undergrad and grad there in the Boston area. And did you major in tech and or business? Was that your trajectory? No, um, I actually was a psychology major. Um, so, and this is, I'm dating myself, but 2001, I graduated from college. So, you know, back then, I also went to a liberal arts school. Let me couch the statement with that. But, you know, tech wasn't so much a thing, right? We weren't really looking at the world saying, hey, the future is, is you know, you've got to learn how to code. You know, the future is you know, sort of in our computer and our phone. Um, it was a really different time. So, um, so I was a psychology major, love psychology. I think this is one of the things you and I share deep passion for. Um, and so I was a psychology major and then I took that and, and parlayed that into um, a job at J. Walter Thompson when I graduated, which... Um, uh, is now Wonderman Thompson. They were bought by Wonderman, but at the time, the largest ad agency in the world, and in fact, the oldest ad agency in the world. Um, so I did that in New York for five years. Um, that was great training ground. I mean, they have a wonderful professional development program. I worked on Domino's, uh, Rolex, um, New Business, Timberland. I mean, it was it was it was awesome. Um, but it was heavily steeped in traditional media. So I learned everything about TV, radio, print. Uh, you can't imagine how many, how many coupons, dominoes, prints, and designs on a weekly basis. Um, so in any case, uh, that's kind of how I, I wound up there because I was really curious about understanding the fundamentals behind creating advertising that works, mm. right? And advertising that work, you know, especially back then, it was less around date, although that's important now, but understanding humans, right? Understanding motivators, intrinsic, extrinsic. So that's why I decided to do that. Um, after that, I, I really, what drove me out of that industry was I sort of got to a point where I, I sort of looked around and said, well, I'm, I'm working like 80 hours a week and I'm helping Domino sell more pizza. And while a worthy cause, <laughs> it just felt like maybe there was something bigger out there. And I wanted to feel at the end of the day, if I'm going to put in time like that, like I'm making the world better in some, mm. in some way. So psychology, communication, and people, those are the three things that I've always been at the forefront of my passions. And I sort of took a step back and said, well, if I think about those three things that I love, um, what, what, what is something else that I could do that could kind of tie all this in? And through many conversations wound up at speech pathology, um, which on the surface looks totally different. It, it's in healthcare, uh, it's patient-oriented. Um, but at its core really keeps those three things at the center. Um, and of course gave me that added lift of service, you know, of feeling like I'm, I'm providing something that's meaningful to the world. So I went back, that's when I came back to Boston, I got a master's at Emerson, um, in communication sciences and disorders. Um, and that, that made me a speech pathologist. So I spent the next seven years or so working with adults, actually neurogenically injured adults. 
So folks who had brain injuries, who had strokes, Parkinson's, um, or young folks who had, you know, gotten in motorcycle accidents. I mean, these were prolonged, deep injuries that were prolonged recovery. So helping them learn how to eat, think, mm. read, swallow again. Um, and it was, you know, very fulfilling work. Um, and I was able to do it at the best hospital in Mount Sinai in New York, Leahy Hospital up here in Boston. Um, and I, you know, I love the challenge, um, especially the mysteries, the mysterious patients where we, ju- you know, we really couldn't figure out, you know, and there are a lot of neurological mysteries. So, um, so that was, I really loved that part, the digging. Um, but eventually, actually, when I moved up to Boston, um, I, is when I met my husband, um, we got married and I kept saying like, God, I really love, like, I really love to like take some photography classes. I'm just, I, I. I just, I feel like that's the creative outlet I haven't explored. So one day he came home, said, I got you a camera. And from then on, I just, I really became quite addicted to it. I started taking classes at New England School of Photography and I, I would work all day, come home and shoot and edit until midnight and do it again the next day. And it was, you know, I'm not, I'm not an inherently creative person. I'm not, you know, I'm not a great drawer. I can't paint, you know, but there are very specific ways that I am creative strategically I'm creative and from a from a sort of uh, visual media perspective I'm creative so um I sort of tapped into this new thing and I just fell in love and I decided after several years of doing it part-time that I wanted to start my own business that business blossomed into photo video commercial work so started with a b2c arm and moved to a b2b arm offices in Boston and then west of Boston here where I live um, and really the, the success was founded on sort of two different things. One was just absolutely obsessive customer service. Mm. Um, you know, I think in that industry, it, it, it's, it can be like every industry it can be lacking. But, um, the, the second thing and maybe the most important thing was just that people want to be heard. Right. And so this is really where, all, you know, my love of psychology and the background that I'd had both from a healthcare perspective and advertising perspective. Right. People are, are, are craving like true presence from another communication partner, right? Being there, asking the question, maintaining eye contact, listening, absorbing, and really having intention to what we are doing. And so that really became sort of my signature for all my work in that company, which was sitting down, doing deep dive interviews with anyone that I was going to work with, anyone that I was going to document. And I had, I found a really great teacher in all of this, a sort of blend of psychology and sales, specifically in the media industry. And he really taught me how to layer questions. And, you know, I st- by the way, great professional skill too, um, you know, as I, as I think about my life and navigating different things. So that kind of became a signature. And so people just, they couldn't get that anywhere else. And it was giving them something more than a piece of media it was giving them, you know, a, a sense of, of, of being cared for. I think that's the best way to put it. Yeah. Yeah. What do you find is the advantage for our, for you from someone who got an undergrad in psychology, then a master's in um, speech therapy disorders to then shifting into tech startup marketing media company? What's the advantage? You've touched on a few of them. I personally believe not only is it an advantage, but I, I tell young people all the time and older people when I talk to agency 
uh, marketing, uh, any type of service business that offers communication on any level, whether it's advertising, media, production, et cetera, you are a psychologist every day for your clients because a client comes to you and says, I want to hire a professional to get my customers or prospective customers to change their behavior because they're not doing what I want them to do. I need you to get them to do something. And usually it's purchase something, sign up for something, come into a store, whatever it may be. So whether we like it or not, um, if you're in those industries, I believe you engage in human behavioral psychology every day on behalf of your clients, whether you realize it or not. Would you agree with that? 100%. Um, I, I could not agree more. And I think part of the advantage is also the variability. So, you know, folks who start in marketing, and, and this is not to, not to say anything negative about a, a singular marketing career, but when you start in one industry and just kind of like buzz your way through it for 15 years, I mean, your, your scope of exposure is, is sort of like pretty narrow, right? In terms of from a professional sense, um, and also from the types of people you tend to deal with. Um, and think that, you know, for me, the advantage is like, you know, I, I just had a group come to me who is they're starting a new, a new tech platform. Let's put it that way. And it's focused on, you know, the geriatric population. And it was interesting. Some of the things he was saying to me, I could really, I could understand immediately and I could get into the mindset of those people. And, and like some of the things he was looking to discover, I've, I've sort of already could give him that answer because I, I had already spent so much time with this population. So just understanding different mindsets, I think, um, you know, and just kind of breaking ourselves out of this one size fits all mentality it's so easy to do that when we're in an echo chamber, right? An echo chamber of our circles um, in our industry. So, yeah, I find too, Karen, that there is more and more opportunity uh, as we have shifted the past few years through the pandemic and through a hybrid and remote. And there is an awareness of work-life balance and mental health and, and what people are calling soft skills in the workplace there's certainly a, a much more openness to it. But I also think, too, the world has opened in, in the lives of consumers, too. They have so many more options. Um, and in a world where everybody is in their own kind of echo chamber, the nuances are multiplied. Like I always say, there's no such thing as a mass person. So mass marketing is, is, is a wrong direction. In a world of individualized, personalized, you know, I expect my Amazon to know exactly what I want, what I ordered, when I need it, what I'm looking for. Um, and I think that's only going to be more and more with, with artificial intelligence. I think the role of someone who understands human behavior, not just high level, but getting down to psychographic uh, affinity to uh, interests I saw recently, and I actually reposted it, a really funny picture. You may have seen it. On one side was New King Charles, and the other side was Ozzy Osbourne. And it was very like, you know, Ozzy had his makeup, was making a goofy, evil face like he likes to do, right? Uh, and then here's King Charles in his, you know, a military suit with his medals. And you know, I, think, I think it said something like, what's the difference between these two? On paper, they look exactly the same. Yes. Right? They're boomers. 
They're British. Um, they like the holiday in the Alps. They like soccer. They, you know, on and on. It was just a long list, but yet two very different people. And I think for years and years, and, I, and I, I'm going to stop talking and I want to hear your opinion on this. I think marketers have followed a formula that says, okay, here's demographically how we reach a person and we put people in these silos. But I think now we have the technology, the ability and the awareness to say, yeah, you can be in multiple demographic and psychographics at the same time. And understanding those nuances, I think, is the future. Your could thoughts. not agree more. Could not agree more with you. Um, and I loved that post. It is like such a perfect illustration of you know what the industry has been sort of doing wrong for the last fifteen years. Um, I think that that's something that we would talk a lot about at Tapple, which is there. It's more about topics that that unite people, right? And that's kind of an unsexy word, but just the idea that there are much more nuanced sort of connection point and and um, sort of uh, commonalities between groups of people that will that are motivating and potent and persuasive, um, but we need to understand what those are. And they're almost never along age lines and they're almost never along, you know, even where you live, you know, I'm in a small town full of 13,000 people, but wow, are we all, are we all, for, you know, the, the 35 to 45 year olds wildly different. So, um, so I, I couldn't agree with you more. I think one of the challenges is going to be, right, and I think we're already starting to see it, is data privacy. And so how do we glean this information um, safely and, you know, from a privacy-friendly perspective? Um, and I think that, like, a, you know, everything that's come out in the last three months, chat, GPT, and others, um, are showing us these really shiny objects. Um, but I think that like, you know, with these inventions and with this, you know, um, new tool comes responsibility, right? It's great responsibility. You could go on and on about this as it pertains to AI and the possibilities within it. However, I think from a marketing perspective, this is where things are, we are really going to be sort of testing the moral boundaries, right? Of, of kind of what, what, what the industry does. Um, we have a great opportunity to move forward um, and really get better at our jobs. Um, but I think maintaining a perspective of this is not a, this is not something threatening my job. This is a tool that I can use. And number two, really think being thoughtful about, you know, how it's going to be used. Right now it's the wild west. And it's almost like when the internet first first was born, you know, it it's it's every man for themselves and and, and run with it and see what you can find and create. Um, but I um I, I definitely have some some hesitancies about sure. you know how it will be. Yeah, I agree, and I try to stay on that edge of the coin a lot lately because um, I I do believe that there are some some serious ethical and moral discussions that are taking place and need to be, expand more. Uh, and I believe that this is as transformative uh, and potentially. Um, helpful for humanity as the internet was. And I, you could even argue that it's even greater than that, right? Because the adoption, the sign up, the usage is greater than we have ever seen, right? It's happened within a matter of months, right? Yes. Where, where the internet yes. was, okay, everybody got on over a period of 10 years. And then, you know, 
another 15 years from that, people slowly have adopted it, whereas this has is, is happened almost overnight. So with all of that, I think it, it will shake out. We will resiliently survive with probably lots of casualties along the way. But what are some of the most exciting things that, that you have seen and get you uh, excited about that intersection of humanity, psychology, technology, and the greater good? Like, what, what, are, what is the world uh, uh, and a vision that you see? I can imagine for you, having worked in geriatric and also speech disorders, um, AI opens up a whole new world to people who are either paralyzed, who can't speak, who yes. may have ALS, um, all of these things. Uh, talk to me about some of that. Um, well, one thing, since you did just bring up um, ALS, I just saw the other day, although I, I'm not sure it uses AI. However, this is huge news that a, a chip was approved. And actually, maybe you posted this. I'm not sure. I, yeah, I, I did. It somewhere. <laughs> okay. It's synchronin. I think it's called <laughs> Synchronin or something, Synchron, Synchron. It's it's Bill yeah. Gates and yeah. uh, and Jeff Bezos' company. They joined together. I mean, the fact. I mean, especially for me, looking at this, knowing what the struggles have been, right? It's very specifically, and what do we do? You know, how do we help these folks who cognitively are a hundred percent there, but um, have lost the ability to communicate? Um, you know, that is it is a game changer. And then thinking beyond. You know, thinking beyond that, and 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 I think the woman um, who was talking about this, it was a it was public, uh, one of the public radio folks um, talking about how you know, well, we got to think about this though in terms of are we going to implant these into our brains? Do we really want all of our thoughts broadcast, you know, instantaneously to text or social, et cetera? Um, these are great points. So it's 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 to me, it's like wonderful to see that happening for that population. But that's another one of those things where, you know, a lot of careful thought has to be put into it. Um, you know, I think uh, in terms of AI, I just saw the other day that Adobe has this new um, module called Firefly. Um, yep. And it is, I mean, there's two things about it that I really like. One is the fact that um, you can you know, essentially just call up, as you may try with some of these other AI image generators, call up specific images you're looking for. Now we can easily, oh, well, I, his code is red. Now I can change it to black. He doesn't seem like as quite as happy as I want him to be. I can change that too. That is that is wildly different than any other AI image platform I have tried, um, and I've played around with a bunch of them. Um, but then I think on the on the edge, uh, um, well, hey, like you know, well, so we're just creating all these images. By the way, it will be very interesting to see what that does to the stock photography market. I, I'm not really sure, you know, I'm not really sure where that will go, but. Um, the, the, the idea that they've also created something, uh, I forget the term. It's something like, uh, no, like it's like an anti-copier. Yeah. Uh, it's anti a tag. They call it a tag. You can choose to have it tagged or not tagged. So, so that, that somebody else could find it or not. And, yes, mm -hmm. exactly. Which I, which I really, I, I like that. Right. It's, it's not just, Hey, I, I made this thing through Adobe and now Adobe owns it and can, you know, sort of resurface it elsewhere. And supposedly um, too, their learning model or learning data that they created it from was all on public domain or non-copyrighted um, image yes, so that exactly. it's not built on other people's work too. 
Exactly. Exactly. So I think that like, I, I get excited about that because they've gone out of their way to really think about, um, you know, co- copyright issues. I mean, th- you know, back when I was in media, I mean, this is a major issue. People are constantly stealing your work from the web. So the fact that they've gone out of their way to make sure that nothing that they're deriving the images from um, actually belongs to someone else, assuming that's true. I mean, that's that's a huge step in the right direction. Yeah, I would agree. Um, let's shift gears a little bit. Actually, it's not shifting. It's maybe expanding where we're going. And in your in your bio, you talk about emerging digital marketplaces. First, let's define that term and why it's so interesting to you. So digital is something that the industry came up with maybe three or four years ago, the marketing industry. And it's this notion of a physical to digital coming together. Hmm. So... Um, so the last company that I was at really the, the, the platform and the reason why I got so excited about it was because we were, this was four and a half years ago at this point when I started with them and we were sort of, it was before the pandemic, right? Um, before we saw things like QR code absolutely kind of blow up into every corner of our life. Um, but this idea that there were emerging technologies, NFC, QR and others that would enable this kind of instant connection, instant engagement um, between a brand and a human. And you could get very creative with kind of how these could get deployed. There are wearables, there are bracelets, there are t-shirts, et cetera, et cetera. But it was a brand new opportunity. It is a brand new opportunity for brands to find more creative, nuanced, personalized ways to weave themselves into people's lives. And one of the other things I really like about is you can, you know, it, it's based in the physical world, right? So we're not talking about when people, the hours people are spending here on their computer or on their phone. It's really about when they're living their life out in the world. And so that requires a whole other mindset when you're thinking about, you know, marketing or advertising or persuasion. You've got to actually, you know, to get in the space. Well, what happens in this space? And what is the flow of this space? And how do people encounter it? Is there typically a line there or is there no line? What do they do when they're standing in the wrench aisle? You know, do, do they typically pause for several minutes and look around? Like, that could be a great opportunity to present them with something relevant. Relevant is the key. So, um, so that to me is, is, was, and still is a very, um, exciting, uh, new arm to the way that, uh, brands can, can talk to, to, uh, customers. I think one of the biggest, um, differences as I, you know, spent my time there and watched consumer behavior around this between traditional or, or digital advertising, let's put it that way, or social, is that, um, you know, that these are not things generally that are just kind of like popping and playing on their own. You have to choose to engage with it. So whether that's a bump up on a tip or a scan of a code um, or, you know, whatever else happens next, um, it is, it's, it's opt-in. So the good news is that folks who engage with it uh, because you've presented them with some kind of relevant offer in the moment, um, they they are far more likely to take advantage of it and engage further, provide information, et cetera. Um, however, uh, you do need to get those people to to engage with it. And so I think therein lies some of the challenge for, for marketers and for brands, uh, particularly as it becomes more ubiquitous and it becomes more kind of in our everyday life, uh, you know, it, it, it'll just, it, it can easily be overdone and then it just becomes like a pop-up ad that we're all ignoring and getting blockers for. So, mm. uh, 
you know, I think there's, there's unique, um, I think there's unique opportunity there to get really valuable information and engagement. Um, on the other hand, though, if not done well, uh, it really can be, uh, you know, s- sort of a, a failure, or at least a monetary failure. Talk about the availability. And I talk about this a lot with, in my consulting practice with, with clients and, and other people around um, the real value for agencies or consultants or marketers like you and I, uh, the value many times for the client is attribution. Uh, They have internal marketing departments. Many times they have their own strategies, but they kind of come to their wits in and go, okay, we've either hit a scaling wall, we can't get beyond this, or we're not able to track our spend and the CFO is giving us pressure to just go, hey, you know, what's the return on this ad spend? In the digital environment, and I know you've worked with this some, uh, either can you talk to me about what is the latest and greatest attribution tracking or what should it be? Or it's not there yet when it comes to if I see an ad or a promotion for some regional store that I want to go to. And then I drive and go into it and I browse around and the role of a good marketer is to follow that person all the way through and go back to the brand that the person is engaging with and go, here's how we tracked that experience. Well, talk to me about that because I find that fascinating. And I think that is the future, obviously, with first party data. It's how do you track a person's it on streaming, viewing it on their phone? walking down an aisle, uh, engaging. I know we're getting a little bit minority report here, but <laughs> for those people old enough to know what that even means. Um, yeah. But talk to me about that. I think that that's, it's tough. We would talk about this a lot also at Apple, right? Because we would have customers ask us to, to for that level of tracking. People need to opt in, right? I mean, we can't just, I mean, as much as I know that my phone is listening to me at all times, I can't prove it, but the ads tell me the story. And um, it comes on randomly throughout the day going, what was that you said again? <laughs> Could you repeat that one more time? <laughs> Louder. Um, so, so I think that that's like, it's a slippery slope, Bob, and I think we need to be careful of that. I think the bigger question is, how do we get consumed? How do we act responsibly as an industry so that consumers feel comfortable enough to give those permissions? Yes. Because I, I, you know, to me, that's, that's what we need to do. And until that's done, I don't know that that level of experience tracking or understanding is going to be legally possible. Um, and I think that's where, you know, that's kind of where we're stuck. Geofencing, I mean, you could, you know, geofencing does something similar. Um, I do know that there are, um, that there are things through connected TV where, you know, they'll, they'll know you watched a commercial. Then they then say a car dealership. They know if you entered that car dealership, right? And then whatever went on there and then you left and came back. I think that's one way. That's a nice way that people are. If you, if you watch, if you use the same device to go to the card that you watched the video, correct? Correct. Right. Okay. Yeah. I think that is a great way. Um, 
Do you know or can you talk about any uh, technologies that are evolving or people are developing in that area that do both, that have uh, ethics as a priority? Um, you know, for example, like we talked about Adobe and what they're doing. Um, is there people and yeah. are there organizations, startups, and maybe just some technology that you've seen uh, in, in this kind of tracking world? So I think that to our point earlier about, is this about, you know, needing these specific demographics of Karen Kelly, born 1979, lives in Wayland, et cetera, et cetera. Do you need that or do you really need, okay, I can group together these 10,000 people based on the fact that they all bought the same brand of ham and they all bought two packages and they all, you know, have done it for the last three weeks, et cetera, right? So, so, I, so what I have seen is some technology coming forward um, particularly in the retail space, where the idea is less around getting super specific about who that person is and where they live and what color their eyeballs are, but more about um, patterns and behaviors that they can kind of group together and then use for retargeting or use for targeting after the fact um, as a group versus getting super specific about this one particular person and how they're how they're acting. So almost how can you use behaviors as triggers to serve up different information based on what you've come to understand? Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And I think understanding those behaviors, um, one of the things, not to get too deep down this rabbit hole, but one of the things that I've been thinking a lot about over the past couple of years is when tracking behaviors, uh, I think historically, and you, if you think of the Mad Men model and, and maybe even agency life where you, where you came up in in New York, it's always talking about behaviors in context of need and scarcity and, you know, just like the basic things that, oh, if I, if I use Old Spice and I'm a young Neil or Gen Z, I'll get more girls, right? Like that's basic human needs looking at Maslow's kind of hierarchy. Yes. But what I've been thinking a lot about is what about marketing to mood? Because I think the Gen Z millennials, everything is about mood to them. It's about how they're feeling in a certain time. And those, that's very fluid, right? Like, mm -hmm. I'm feeling blue and you even see it in their post, right? This meme or this photo is a mood, they say. Well, what is it? Well, it's a cat lounging and it's like it doesn't give a crap about what's going on in the world, right? So they're saying my mood, this is my mood today. Um, but it, but it evolves and changes. And I think it's bleeding over into older generations too, because again, we're not just one dimensional that, you know, it's not about sex and uh, happiness and success and scarcity and, well, all the things that are just like basic marketing messages have now evolved into, I want to know what you value as a company. I want to know if you understand me and my moods and my mental health and, you know, so whether it's social justice or equity or how do you feel about the environment? Can you talk a little bit about that and in, in when it comes to marketing, communication, and, and even maybe startups that you've been involved in or you're hearing from, um, is that a thing? Are people thinking about that? And if they are, what are your thoughts on it? Yes. 
uh, that is definitely being thought about. I love that you brought that up. Um, we did start to tinker around with some of that, but the, the challenge obviously is fluidity, as you said, right? So different times are feeling different things. But maybe, my, this is my own personal thought on it, maybe it's not necessarily about serving the message at the moment or in the mood, but maybe showing that you can relate to a mood that they have frequently, right? And so you speak to it and it doesn't have to hit them at that moment. But I can see a post that, you know, like that cat, and maybe I don't feel that way at this moment, but I know I did last Monday, right? So I think that, Again, that just coming back to having a better understanding of like, who are those humans you're talking to? And like, like you said, at that top of that pyramid, right? Like, what, what are some of those the mo most nuanced things about that cohort of folks? Um, and then how can we speak more directly to them? And I think worrying less about like, oh, you know, it, at the moment they're experiencing it, but more just showing that you understand who they are. Yeah, I love that. Kind of along those same lines, I want to talk about, and I've been really interested to ask you a couple of questions about this, because this is another thing I've been talking to people and thinking about, you know, speaking with people who are in media theory, media ecology, the effects of media on humans. Um, one of the things that's really interesting is I've been wanting to ask you about your experience with a language, with words, as someone who has worked in the field of speech pathology and the disorders there, path that you've taken, Karen, that you went from that to dealing with words, psychology, language, to over here going into multimedia, which is kind of like, you could say it's the opposite, you could say, and here's where I'm going with it symbolic language, you had something that symbolized the experience. But when I write L-O-V-E, and I, I'm trying to communicate something that I might have for someone I care deeply about, whether it's my wife or a close friend or my child, I have to write L-O-V-E and, and then whatever else I want to say. And so I take those words and what I just wrote in English, and I go to someone in another country and go, this is the feeling. And they go, I, that means nothing to me. They cannot communicate. And so I can't only communicate my real experience that we have in common. So where I'm going with this, when it comes to marketing and strategy, and we've talked about mood. Um, what are, the, what are the, the roadblocks and the barriers between where we've come so far in a multimedia always on space of communicating through video and images? And where we're going with uh, our words, our language going to be more important in the future or is it going to be less important in the future? And, and I don't know if I'm making sense, but I, I, I wanted to talk to you about this. Yeah. Um, I, I'll do my best to answer that, but feel free to also kind of say, well, yeah. I was thinking more in this direction. So... When you say language, do you simply, do you mean the written English language or do you just mean the ability to communicate a thought? Um, more written is what I'm really talking okay. about, but it also translates, right? I have to jump out of my experience and get it on a page. But if I'm an artist, I communicate a feeling and experience, maybe in a painting, maybe in a sculpture, mm -hmm. maybe in a mm -hmm. film. 
so that when people leave or walk away from it or they're standing in front of it, they're like, there's an energy and an experience and a feeling. And some people cry and some people get a different uh, perspective on it from their own world that many times language alone can't communicate. Um, and I've seen this evolution of pop-up ads, right? It's mm -hmm. words that's, that interrupt us while we're looking for something that says, hey, Bob, you need this. Have you tried this? To, to a very different evolving world that we're seeing now that becomes, um, for instance, when I look at Super Bowl ads, right? They, they've moved away from slogans that you're trying to get people to memorize and words to how do I get people to feel and experience something from this video? And oh, by the way, this is sponsored by Toyota, but it's a story of a, of, a, of a guy, of a man growing up with his little daughter, and then she goes away to college, and she's driving away in the same truck that her dad had. And we all like get teared up, and I'm getting teared up right now even talking about it. Um, but that experience. So I know that a good advertising companies have always been able to do that, but mm -hmm. I think we're entering into an interesting era now where people maybe are reading less and listening more and maybe our senses are being extended in other ways. So again, from a speech pathologist point yeah. of view, I'd love to love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, and that's really interesting, Bob. Honestly, I haven't really given much thought to that, to kind of where that aspect of things are going. But my gut is that language will never be displaced. Yeah. And the, re the reason why is because when that, in the example you gave of the, the painting, right, of the, of the person who created something based on a feeling, you might have 10 people stand in front of that and they all experience something different when they look at it. Maybe there are themes, but it's something different. Language is specific. It is direct. And to give you a, a sort of a different example on the opposite, making the opposite argument, a website, right? You can have great design, but if you have no copy, will it convert, right? And if you see go the other way and say, I've got great copy, but no design. Excellent point. Excellent point. So I think that's kind of, I think, you know, I am a big fan of, of, of injecting emotion and feeling into what we present to people. And that starts with, you know, understanding that those people at the top of the pyramid. But I don't think that, I think language is always going to be incredibly important. It's maybe less language, right? But language to kind of really sort of seal that deal of emotional connection. Mm. Yeah. It is interesting. And, and as the world becomes smaller, how does that play out, you know, in translations, in the ways we say things, mm -hmm. the words that we use and mean? And can we communicate it in nuanced different ways? And I think that's what we're, tr I'm always trying to be sensitive yeah. to as I talk to different generations. An interesting kind of anecdotal thing. I wanted to get your, your thought on this too is, um, I was, I did my own kind of non-scientific experiment recently where I asked my kids, each one of them, and they're kind of all different ages. And I asked some of their friends, and then I asked some of my own friends and acquaintances. And the, specifically, the question was this, do you have concerns and fears around uh, what's happening with technology and artificial intelligence? And it was interesting, 
Every human being had a concern, but here was the nuanced difference that I found fascinating. Gen Z and millennials, for the most part, and again, this is non-scientific and it's anecdotal, but I, I think there's a thread here to pull, is they like where the technology is going. They even think it's going to be benefit mankind. They're very concerned about what humans could potentially do with it in negative ways. Okay? So mm. trust the technology, distrust humans. Generation X and boomers are, I do not trust the technology. The technology is going to, to, to overtake and remove some aspect of my humanity. Trust humans, distrust technology versus trust technology, distrust humans, which is an interesting nuance to me. And again, I know that people that that's non-scientific, but I think it's an interesting thing to think about as we're thinking about uh, marketing, the future yeah. of tech, where we're going in our own psychology as human beings, and pushing toward a more flourishing world. Any thoughts on that? I think it all comes down to comfort and familiarity, right? To me, that's exactly where that line slices through. The gen, you know, the millennials and uh, Gen Z have grown up basically with a phone in their hand. Yep. Right. So I, I feel very comfortable with the technology. I don't think it's out to harm me, but I'm, I am very aware of what, of what the humans, <laughs> because, you know, those generations too, right? They've seen some, some pretty terrible things happen, right? In the yes. last, say, 25 years. So, um, so I think that, that, that to me, that it comes directly down to that. And I just think Gen X and boomers are just, they're left less comfortable with the technology. They're less likely to have a job in technology. And so it's just, there's just a trust factor there. Yeah, that's a really good point. That's a really good point. And I think there's a difference between what you grow from and what you grow into. And when you grow mm -hmm. to technology like we did, um, we fear the unknown. When you're growing from something and it's what you've always known, there's nothing to fear, right? It's like this it's is a great way to put it. Yeah. So anyway, that that's interesting. So what's the future for Karen and what are you looking at now? And mm -hmm. what are you thinking about or, or a new startup on, on, on the horizon? I'm taking my time with this. Um, I've had a few offers. I think from my perspective, what I, I, I am a person who leads with their heart <laughs> for better or worse, whatever it is I'm going to do next, I'm going to be totally fully on board with and entrenched in. Um, one of the things I have been thinking about, and this is sort of just the shell of a star of a of an idea, is we are understanding more and more about the data that that tells us what truly makes people happy, right? Not the false idol of money and power and fame, but rather what makes us happy inside, right? So Arthur Brooks, I know you and I have shared some discussion around him. He is a um, professor out of Harvard. He's done uh, uh, decades of research about happiness um, and and through, through his own struggles. Um, and so I think he's great. Um, and really, you know, some of the biggest things he talks about, right? community, friendships, service. Um, and so taking those pieces, um, looking at other things we're seeing in the world right now, these incredibly high rates of depression, anxiety, loneliness, 
Um, yes, we see a lot of talk about it in, uh, you know, millennials and, and really Gen, uh, Gen Z. However, it's also a pervasive problem in the geriatric population. Right? And, I, and I think, to be honest, it's, pro- it's a problem for us, too. So, you know, kind of the, the, the Gen X, you know, you know, boomers. Um, and I, I have been thinking, so I've been thinking about, well, we know what kind of makes us happy. We know we've got this problem. Well, what's causing this problem? A lot of it is what's in our phones, right? A lot of it is uh, social media, but it's nuanced. There's a lot of it, right? A lot of it's the news. It's outrage. It's overload of information. It's the way our society is divided. And so I think for a while, my frustration was around like, why can't we have better controls in place on these phones? You know, and like one of the first things I did when I left my job is I put controls on like LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, like I can't be on for more than 30 minutes a day. And that felt good. But I'm like, well, there are ways around that. People, people aren't good at limiting themselves. And so then I started thinking, well, what if there's a way they, I think we've gotten to a point people, people want to fix it. People know they're sort of sick and they want, but they don't know how. So what if, what if we found a way to give them something better? What if we found a way to deliver sort of this, this remedy or this antidote that the data is now supporting about what actually makes people happy, getting high in a different way, getting endorphins in a different way? Like, what if we could create something for people at scale. I, I always, I keep thinking of it as like love at scale, but it's just mm. that feeling of like, you know, like you are whole as a person, you are worthy, you are, you know, you are powerful, you are strong. And so, you know, I, so I've been thinking a lot about that and I have a few ideas and I don't want to talk about it too much now, but I'm very, I'm very excited about it because I, I really either, I mean, it, it'll be a tough nut to crack, but I think like, you know, kind of getting, getting in the ring there with mental health. Um, and you know, that, that can really span a lot of ages, um, and providing a way to potentially start something on the web and transition to the physical world. Um, is something that I'm looking at now. So that's great. Well, we're going to keep an eye open on that because what a great endeavor. And I agree with you a thousand percent. That's the, uh, it's interesting when I talk, I know I've, I've even co-written a book on it the effects of, of social media. My last book, Our Digital Soul. You don't have to convince people. People know when you ask them, open your, your phone app and, and look at your screen time app. Or it's like, oh gosh, I spend yes. way too much time. Yes. And I know I need to. And I know this and I know that. But it's almost like, and, and I'm guilty of this. It's almost like we're addicted to something we know is not good for us, but we don't know how to stop. Because everyone around us is doing it too, yes. um, and and it's become uh, it's become reactionary almost. You know, it's like second nature. I tell people all the time. Here, they're like, "Well, how do I? Where do I start?" I think, well, here's one simple way: when you're in a line getting coffee and then you have to wait, don't pull out your phone while you're waiting. Yes. Like, just yes. don't do it. Like, be practice being bored. And when you're at a, yeah. and when you're at a coffee shop talking to someone, and they go wait a second, can I, can I answer this phone call? That's not a cue for you to bring out your phone. That yeah. just sit there and be bored. Like those two little things, for me, it shows me how um, programmed I am and that it's, it's not in the want, the desire not to do it. It's in the practice, you know, it's in the rhythms of going, I'm going to be the only one in this line where people are waiting against the wall for their coffee that's not looking at their phone. 
And that's huge. That, that's huge. Just practicing being different because, you know, those mirror neurons are like, everyone's looking at their phone. I'm going to look at my phone. I'm not going to be the odd person out, right? All right. It's, it's that kind of almost simple psychology on one sense, but very complicated. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, and I think, th- I don't think I'd be de- going down this path if I, you know, didn't have an a, a employment right now, right? Because you're just so busy, like staying on the rails, right? And keeping it together. And, and whether, you know, your family, your job, whatever it is, it's like, you're just trying to get through. But now that I have some free time, I've experienced exactly what you say. And so like guilty as charged. Um, but how do we break it? How do we permanently break it? But how do we get the other people to do it too? So, you know, it's almost like, how do we invert that habit where, you know, we're all kind of learning from each other. And so where was I recently? I was waiting in a doctor's office, right? Ugh, so boring, right? But I was like, I'm just going to close my eyes and like smell things. Like notice what I'm smelling. You know what I mean? It's like, don't do that anymore. Like yeah. we don't, you know, because we were just numbing ourselves and just, just this tunnel vision. And so I have tried to do little experiments with myself. It, it is hard work, you know, it, really it is, is hard work. work. It is hard work. But the, the value that I've tried to tell my kids and others is that in my research, and you probably know this even more than I do, is that boredom is hugely valuable to yes. the human brain to um, re-energize, to rest, to, to process subconsciously things. And boredom is where many times creativity, problem solving, but ultimately relieving that cognitive load that we're always under actually comes from. And if you never allow yourself to do it, I think it could be a big reason why at the end of the day or midday, we're like, oh, I'm so exhausted. I don't know why I haven't done anything. My brain's feels because you've never had, you never allowed it to, to rest or daydream or, or be bored on some level. I don't know if, if you've studied that. I didn't agree longer. No. Without a doubt. I'm sure we've read the same articles about it. Absolutely. Which kind of ties back into this whole notion of burnout, right? Too, which is like, we're spending too much time working. We're not spending enough time playing. We're all, you know, we, we're all afraid. I mean, coming out of this pandemic, et cetera, right? It is, it is, I don't think there's ever been a more challenging time for mental health. And so, you know, again, I don't think there's ever been a better time to address this. I think people are ready. They want it. You know, we see, we see it with the great resignation and folks who we still can't get bus drivers back to work after school, you know, daycare workers and because people are just making different decisions now. So, um, so yeah, I don't think there's ever been a better time to try to start experimenting with a bit, you know, large scale. What can we do to yeah. kind of help humans break this without relying on the government to, to somehow, you know, um, uh, handcuff the technology companies? Sure, sure. Well, Karen, if if people want to connect with you, is LinkedIn your your platform of choice? Link, LinkedIn is great. LinkedIn is okay. great. Yep. Okay, great. Well, thank you for this time. I hope that thank you. Many other people have learned a few things from you, and we'll, we'll we will all be keeping an eye on your future because based on your past, great great exciting new startups and ideas are coming from Karen Kelly. I'm sure. Thanks, Bob. Thanks so much for having me. I absolutely love your content. I always love our conversation. So thanks again. All right. We'll talk to you soon. 